This episode is sponsored by Jonas Paul Eyewear. They make the most stylish eyewear for kids on planet Earth. And this is where it gets really good, I think. With every purchase, you can actually help restore and maintain the eyesight of kids and families across the world through their BuySight GiveSight program. If you've got a little one, or frankly, if you're in need of some stylish, smaller-sized frames for yourself, check out JonasPaulEyewear.com. The link will be in our show notes. Hey, pluckies. So I recorded this episode a while back when I was still pregnant with baby Jack. So just a heads up, (laughs) I am not pregnant again. And just wanted to clarify that. All right, on with the episode. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups, their mistakes, and their wrong turns, but also about how they moved on and up and through the more difficult and challenging seasons and experiences so that they could keep building lives of purpose and passion and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. Okay, so the truth is, I did not know about the brilliant human Marvin Harrison before this interview. But after connecting for like, I think we ended up chatting for well over, I don't know, y'all, I think maybe it was like two and a half hours. We mutually decided that in an ideal world, we would co-host a podcast together. So that might give you an idea of how much I enjoyed this conversation with Marvin. Don't worry, we edited it down. It's going to be a normal length, but there was lots of chatter that happened. I feel like we lived an entire existence together before I even started recording, talking about everything from our personal relationships to some really complex social topics that we are going to dive into on this show. If you are not familiar with his work, I am just thrilled to be introducing you to this incredible human being because Marvin is doing something really important and special in the world by really owning and fostering a really important conversation around gender equality, a specific part of it, kind of from the male perspective that I have actually long felt very passionate about, but just, you know, in the spaces in the world that I occupy, don't get to talk about as much as I would like. So, ooh, I'm just so tickled about this conversation. Marvin is the host of the Dope Black Dads podcast, and he's also the CEO of an organization called Dope Black Dads, which is an educational and healing platform designed for you guessed it, dope black dads, but also, of course, for all the beautiful people in their orbit that their healing and education will benefit as well. In this episode, Marvin and I dive into what I think is a really nuanced and vulnerable conversation around parenting from a distinctly male perspective, which again, I think nowadays is like a little bit more rare. We have a lot coming from the female perspective of mothering, but a lot less about the human experience of being a father in the modern world that we occupy today. So this is definitely not, it's not a how-to guide. This is a discussion on how our lived experiences and these new learnings can impact the way we see ourselves, the way we raise our kids and form community. And we also touch on, you know, some fluffy topics, light topics like systemic racism, 
and white feminism and, you know, how all of this intersects with the way we handle relationships and the way that we see and interact with the world. This was such a great conversation. So without further ado, let's go. Hey, Marvin, I am so excited. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Plucking Up podcast. Thank you for having me, Liz. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good today. We're working with a little bit of a time difference. Tell everybody where you're calling in from. <laughs> so today I'm traditionally from London and, and I'm born and raised there. But I'm currently in South Africa launching our community groups out here. Uh, so I've been here since November on and off and back and forth to the UK um, doing that. So it's, you know, I'm a little bit in the future to you. Uh, I let you know that the world doesn't end uh, in the future. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be well. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's been an amazing journey and, and obviously South Africa is an incredible place. Uh, very complex history, but an amazing present. So um, it's an honor to be here. Hmm. You sold me pretty hard. It's already at like the top of my bucket list, but you sold me pretty hard that it deserves a space at the top of my bucket list. So once the world opens back up, I'm going to have to make it more of a priority. It, it just is one of those places where like, I think you just, it has a bit of everything and it's always warm-ish. So fantastically, it's just a perfect climate for people like me and you. It's good. See, now he's selling all of you guys too. Are you an ambassador for South Africa? Do you get a commission on any tourists Someone that decide that. to sign up to come to South Africa? People do say that. And I, I am that much of an advocate. People are like, are you, is this a job? What What are you doing? And I'm like, Who are no, you working no, for, Marvin? <laughs> just an authentic joy that I'm sharing with all of you. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, tell our listeners, we'd love to hear just a little bit about you and your background. Tell us a little bit about the Marvin story, if you will, going back as far as you are willing to take us. Because I know that you're, even your early childhood, there is some influence into how you're living out your passion and your purpose here in present day life. And we'd love to learn a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I'm I'm an eighth child of the 80s, which is by far the best decade to have been born. And it was the intersection of technology and analog. And so we were the first generation who got the balance. So we know what happens when the electricity doesn't work. We know what to do, but also we know how to use all the apps. So we are the best generation by far. Isn't Um, it wild that it is like (laughs) such a unique experience that like no generation will have after us to have that like crossover. When in the 80s were you born? How old are you? I'm going to say in the middle. I'm just going to throw it out there in the middle somewhere. Okay, I'm in the middle too. And it is so wild to me because I definitely remember not having the internet. And like, I remember my first experience with my family getting a gateway computer. It came in that like giant cow print box and like unboxing it and wiring it up to like hardwire internet and doing the thing where you like dial into AOL. And a lot of times it was like, sorry, we're busy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it sounded like they were drowning kittens. That's what getting online sounded like. And it was horrific. But we were so excited to join a website and just type in like www.encarta.com. There's like eight websites or something. I don't even know what we were doing with it, to be honest. I don't either. Way, like, can you imagine what life would be like right now if you were like, oh, I just got to hop online to like, you know, send this project off and the internet just told you like, there's too many people on right now. We're busy. <laughs> so come like, back come later. back later. But that was the experience. Like, I definitely remember sitting yeah. at my computer and being like, just pressing enter over and over again. And it's like knocking at the holy gates, like being like, are they going to let me in? 
Yeah. Are they going to let me it, in? It felt, it felt like a prize. It felt like, like am I going to be lucky today and get straight online? Yeah. Oh, so wild. So wild. So, okay. So you grew up in the 80s. <laughs> that's as far as we got. Yeah, that's um, as far as we got. I, we grew, I grew up in the 80s, um, single parent household. My mom was the guardian of four of us. And my father was, uh, he was absent pretty much the whole, my whole of my life since I was a year and a half. Hmm. Um, he reoccurred when I was about nine, ten. Uh, oh, wow. And he, he, he visited us to try and, you know, rekindle something. But I think after three weeks of seeing us, he he abandoned that idea um, oh. as, as being too, ex- uh, probably too expensive and too emotionally laborious. <laughs> he had uh, quite a few kids. He didn't really look after any of them. So I think he made attempts at sporadic moments to try and repair, but largely we just didn't have a relationship. And wow, so, was that... I would imagine that, that that was just as painful, if not more, than the original leaving. Like, to have your dad leave at 18 months, you're kind of like, okay, well, I just grew up without a dad. I mm. feel like for him to come back into the picture, to meet you as a 9 or 10-year-old, and then to be like, mm, maybe never mind. What did that do yeah. to your, like, 9 or 10-year-old psyche? So it was interesting. So he basically knocked the door one day. We have never seen him before. So it was like, he knocked the door. Some man's at the door. We're like, mom, there's a man at the door. He wants to speak to you. And then we would go back in the house. And then we normally would peek around the corners and be like, who's that man knocking on our door? <laughs> you know, just like, you know, looking after your mom, making sure she's fine. Yeah. And then uh, she came back in and goes, ah, oh, that was your dad. He wants to see you. So I was like, oh, my dad, what? I don't remember what he looks like. What did he look like? What did he say? And you're obviously very, very excited. And then, uh, from the best of my memory, he basically the whole week was like school was like Christmas week. It was like, my God, my dad. But you're also thinking of your dad conceptually, like TV dads and like film dads and like the nice totally. dads. Yeah. And then you never think about, and the thing is, I probably knew at that point he wasn't a great father, but there was something specific about now that it's my dad and he's real and he's here and he wants to see me. He's perfect. And, sure. um, so you, you know, you go to school that week and you're over the moon. And then when he came back, we met for maybe like two hours. Uh, just like uh, around the corner from our house, we sat in his car, played the steering wheel, best thing ever. And then obviously, you then rose to it, and you're like, that was the best, most transformative. My mom's looked after us for nine years, incredibly well, by the way. And then, like, he came up and said, sit in my car and play in my steering wheel, and he's equal. <laughs> I like, cannot so. <laughs> imagine from your blessed mother's experience how that would feel. It just goes to show the emotional development of women is so far beyond what men would because I would have rage. My mom was calm as hell. I would, <laughs> yes, totally. Well, maybe you're being too generous by extending that to all women because I probably would have had <laughs> rage as well. Maybe I'm not as developed as your average woman because that is something that drives me nuts about, yeah. I don't know, the patriarchy is that, and I have a child rearing partner. My husband is like, wildly involved, very responsible in some ways more than I am. And so this is less of a personal reflection, but even still what it takes from a society standpoint, I will watch people like praise him for things that average woman just does. And everybody knows that she's going to do and expects it, which is interesting. And so anyway, I want to dive into that more with you later because I have a feeling you're going to have some big thoughts on it. But it's interesting <laughs> that you saw that. You saw that like difference of expectation maybe even in your own life. Yeah. And I think it, it wasn't necessarily the norm to have mothers willing to have 
absent fathers come and just be present straight away. Because yeah. also it's quite hugely disruptive. Like, yes, they have a right in many terms. And I agree with that, right? And I think you should try to encourage and nurture that. But sometimes it's just like, I've just got into a flow. I'm managing these children. You enter and I know you won't be here in two months time. So it's just super annoying to give you that opportunity. But I do think it's great that we got to see ourselves firsthand that he wasn't very good as a human being rather than to be told to oh, us. Oh, interesting. So it was, it was our lived experience. And so mm. we can own it and it just lasts longer now. So we don't waste time entertaining the idea of him. But I think, you know, that was a challenge in the moment. I, but I also definitely overcame it and forgot it for many, many years because mm. I didn't really consciously even consider that male parenting was important until I became one. Okay. It was the moment that I, you know, I knew I was having a child. And after the like, yes, and the, the bravado of like, I'm going to do this incredibly well because I didn't have a father and I'm going to do it amazingly and I'm going to change the narrative, of, you know, all that big gesture stuff. And then obviously your child comes and you're like, well, what do I do then? What's, what's, how does this work for me? Yeah, because <laughs> you didn't have, well, it's interesting because it sounds like your mom provided an amazing upbringing for you it sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong that you made it through childhood with a sense of like i'm okay i'm okay and i'm taken care of in the world and not like you know my existence is completely forlorn because i am missing this father figure which in some ways is really beautiful right that it was like your mom did this incredible job basically you know representing two parents but then it left you, it sounds like, with a lack of, like, a vision or model for, like, how do I step into this? Because I didn't even see it, one, modeled out, but two, even as, like, something that was completely necessary, it sounds like. Yeah. And I think, like, male parenting is very specific. And I don't know if you ever saw the Will and Jada interview, the one where it was Father's Day, and she did a bit of a tribute to him. It's a, a mm. Red Table talk. It was a really beautiful conversation, but he says something really poignant at the end where he's like, look, I don't want to get into this now because obviously it's a very sensitive conversation because he was talking about his blended family. He was talking about the, his first wife and, and and she made it difficult to see the children at a particular mm. point and he was trying to force it, being like, I'm going to make it. But naturally they just, trans. He the son came over to him and naturally just seeked his father out and, you know, then was able to connect. And I think men not understanding how the proximity and how much the affinity should be in the early years really disconnects them. And, and that's what encourages them or makes them feel like it's actually okay if they leave. Yeah. Because it's more than just like, I don't get along with the mother of my children or my wife or my girlfriend at the time. It's like, you have to have a, an internal understanding of what you're there for and you've got to feel it. Otherwise, that disconnection can result in many, many things. So I feel like when I speak to our fathers, we did a poll for Dog Black Dads and they said that I think it was 46% of all dads didn't feel like a father at all until their children were a toddler, so three to five. Okay, yeah. So yeah. So that's three years and that's the toughest three years. The first five years are the toughest, but the first three years is when it's really just like new. You lose your partner. You know, my, my wife was my best friend in the world. Like I told her everything. We did everything. It was like finished up with sentences. What do you want for dinner? And then, you know, this human that you are, you know, intellectually aware that you should love them but you don't feel it because you don't carry them in the same way. You don't go through the process in the same way. So it's not like you don't love them. It just doesn't, the feeling that you may have, for example, for your partner, the depth of affinity of watching her be pregnant, uh, give birth, you know, like that, you know, that's stuck in my head. Like the respect I have for my wife for doing that is now on another level and will never leave no matter what um, happens. 
but you don't have that for the child that comes out. It's a slight disconnect. And then, you know, you have little moments and every time you have a moment, it creates a thread and that thread is like, gets more and more. So the first time, so I'll never forget, we, we didn't go out at all for the first two weeks. We were nervous about taking our child outside. It was like someone may sneeze and this is pre-COVID <laughs> where sneezing was relatively normal and not life-threatening but yeah. like you know someone might do something and you know and I was just like I remember one day after two weeks of being in the house I was like that's it I'm gonna do it and I'm like you need a rest I'm gonna take it I'm gonna take it to my mom the mom was 15 minutes walk away and I never forget and this is really I'm so glad I did this because before that I was like it's a baby it's fine and then I'm walking with this baby I'm like if this baby wakes up before I get to my mom's house I actually don't know what the hell I'm gonna do so please don't wake up <laughs> And I, I remember, and this, this is when you make really weird observations about, about the world. And you're like, I'm walking on these pavements and I'm like, these pavements aren't steady. I'm paying my council tax. And every single time I roll over one, they make a sound and they're not stable. And I'm doing all of this in my head. Like, this is get me to my mother's house because she'll know what to do when I get there. I'm trying to be bold and help my wife out. And like, but then because we went through this together, this fear and this shock that I went through that I got to my mother's house and he didn't wake up. And I was like, we went through something. I love you. Mm-hmm. We did it together. We were a team. You knew I didn't need you to wake up and you did it. We're a team. And like, we just had a bond after that. And then little threads like that happen, very, very tiny. And then before you know it, you're like, I don't, I can't live without them. So like me, me being away from home right now is really, really challenging for me. And like, no amount of meditation is helping. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, I want my children here right now. They are the best thing in the world. And I'm, I keep getting updates and it never satisfies the, you know, I just want to see them be, you know, figuring it out. I want to, I want to watch every moment of that. Wow. There was so much in there that I feel like we could really camp out on. You know, you talked about how you said it was 50% of dads didn't feel connected to their kids. 46, yeah. 46. Wow. Okay. In those really early years, which you're right, are the hardest years, they're also where so much of a child's identity and intellectual development and sense of attachment are formed, obviously, you know, before the age of three um, or up until the age of three. And so that correlation is, it's really wild that 50% of dads, and I have to imagine that the dads that are in your group, right, the sample size are, these are, these are guys that are raising their hands saying, I care about fatherhood. Like I want to be a good dad. That's why I'm a part of this thing that we will, that we will get to later. But it, it does really make me think of, and this is assuming you have a healthy, committed partnership, right? Like in your upbringing experience, your dad was like, peace out. So your mom just Mm. had to do what she had to do, right? She didn't have the option to create this space for your dad because he didn't raise his hand saying like, I really want to be here and I want to be needed. But when that is, I think in my experience as a woman, so I have two sons and I'm pregnant with our third right now. And um, thank you. And I work full time. I travel quite a bit. And so for me, one of the natural kind of outcomes of this life that I've chosen of being like, you know, my family is my absolute priority. I also feel deeply called to a career in vocation and a life that doesn't have me home with my kids five days a week or seven days a week. And what that has allowed in my marriage are these natural spaces where my husband has to step in, right? Where it's like, Mm. well, I'm traveling. So pretty early on, you have both of the kids on your own. And I deeply believe that creating those spaces for him for exactly what you were talking about these like bonding experiences that it's like we did it together and to build a sense of 
competency that it's like, mm. I believe in you. You can do it. You're a really competent human being that's just as able to be like a competent co-parent as I am. And sometimes I feel like there is this sense that we're becoming more aware of the ways in which like women in the workplace, for instance, their value is diminished, right? Like you're not acting like a man, therefore you're not as valuable to this, mm. you know, board meeting or this like brainstorming session or this strategic plan. But I think we're a little bit slow to catch up on the way that we subtly do that to men. These like, it's still acceptable to have these like big dumb dad memes and assumptions, you know, that it's just like, oh, I leave for the weekend and everything's going to fall apart. That to me feel really like degrading. (laughs) And it's like, you're a grown human who like has access to the same internet that I have access to, to figure things out. And you're really smart and you're really competent. And I believe very deeply that you can take care of our children. And that dichotomy is an interesting one that our society is in right now, that it still feels more socially acceptable to a little bit be like, yeah, but dads, you know, you never know what's going to happen. I think there's a, there's a, there's a connection between how women feel at work. Um, Like if innately you feel competent until someone says something to you that makes you feel that maybe you're not. And then yeah. it's really loud and it plays really aggressively in your head. And that becomes like, you know, imposter syndrome or just, you just genuinely feel like you're out of place. It's very difficult to be a balanced human being in those scenarios, but it's the same thing in terms of male parenting. And so you have to literally tell yourself a switch on a button. Mm. I'm going to male parent right now. And whatever is said, and also like the nuance of relationships and you're obviously in one. So, you know, the subtle tilts of the head and the eyebrows like, Oh, is that what you're going to do with the bottle? Okay. <laughs> like we know what that all means. And it just like plays in your head and you're, you know, you're trying to turn on this button to come and be a, and be a father, but all these subtle cues. And so Will Smith's message was like, you have to let men parent how they see it. And they may make some errands, but like when your child is in the air, you've probably done this, seen this, like your dad, the dad's just like doing this with the baby in the air, like one hand and then dropping them. Like that's their way of connecting in the way they know how. And so if you make sounds or visualize or be worried about it and make it a thing, then you just remove the connection point possibility mm. for him. And no matter what, whether it's right or wrong, like you've co-created life together. So you know, let's find a way that's some happy ground. Also, I think this is what, you know, many conversations aren't had about how you're going to co-parent in advance, real conversations. It's mm-hmm. actually quite hard to do until you've had children. Yeah. But, you know, we might say that, well, I'm Catholic and so I want to raise Catholic. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not really that bothered, so I'm happy with the customs. But you don't think about the actual implications. So I never forget when circumcision. So I, I wasn't circumcised as a child. And so I was like, my child will be circumcised. Now, if you know modern science, there is no benefit to being circumcised. It's a cultural, sometimes religious exercise that's really performative if we, if we go down to it. But I understand also the implications as a man of the tearing that can happen, the infection that can happen, the dirt that can build up. So if you don't look after it, and, you know, it can be quite a painful experience. So I'm using that insight to get to the thing. And my wife was on World Health Organization giving me directives and I'm like, I hear what you're saying, but you're just like, my lived experience matters. Mm. And so, you know, then we had to call somebody in. So we called in a religious leader who came and did it. Uh, not that we're religious, but that's the person who said they would do it for us. And I watched it happen and I was like, I'm not doing that again. Wow. It's, it's mutilation. It's wrong. Well, I'm never doing that stuff again. 
And oh like my in my mind gosh. at the time, I was adamant that that was the most important thing to happen. And then the second I saw it and I watched my son go purple, I was like, never, never again. Like, I was like, if we have another son, never. Like I was furious with myself, but uh-huh. also just like, you know, I'm grateful that I had the support to land at the conclusion in that way, but met, not always that's possible. And so, but now I've, I've closed the chapter in my education and understanding. I get my personal experience, but also I feel like, you know, in that moment for my son, was that worth it? And what that's done to the, you know, the connection of my brain, like seeing my son turn purple from the excruciating pain, it just was horrific. And, you know, but I don't want to get into whether people should and shouldn't do it. I'm just saying for me, that yeah. was a clear sign that that doesn't, that wouldn't happen for me again. Yeah. It's also a really interesting conversation about how we share in decision-making lived experience versus facts and information. They're both really important, right? I love your wife for being on the World Health Organization website. That's totally me. I come into every argument in my marriage with like, yeah, but here's the research. <laughs> and I know that I do that. I'm, I am a research fiend rabbit trail. And here's the thing. I think it's really valuable. I think I add a lot to our family and to our partnership because I do a lot of research. I think I'm a good researcher. I know good, valid, you know, reliable information. And I bring that in. But one of the things that my partner has told me that that can do is by nature, it's like it disvalidates his instinct, his lived experience, because I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is what this white paper from Harvard Medical Review said. (laughs) So your experience, you know, and really creating that balance in a relationship between like research and information is really important and being informed is really important. But also as we pursue these parenting journeys together, lived experience is important and honoring that and creating space for um, your partner's experience to inform parenting. It's a fine balance. It's a thing. And look, I think we're we're asking that of men to have that awareness in terms of a female's intuition in particular rooms and pay attention to your experience. So women in their droves haven't led businesses en masse, but then we're, we're we're going to have to accept that that is possible and get out the way and allow it to happen. In the doing so, there may be some examples where it's like, well, this woman decided to do this and she acquired a business that bankrupted her. But that's not the, the data set for the whole concept. That's to say yes. that we need to, you know, invest more in the effort. So I think in many ways, it could be a generation of men that are leading in male parenting. And it could be things that arise that are wrong, that are challenging, that cause harm psychologically or physically. But that's the process of the evolution mm. of us. So we need to get better at it collectively. Um, mm. And the other thing is, and I think this is really important, and it's the thing that I've learned more recently, it's just that, you know, sometimes being right doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> you know, being right comes at the cost of affinity. And so I've learned that being right isn't the thing. I've had to say, does it work? So does your method work? Does my method work? If they both work, then it's like, you just got to accept that maybe this is your turn to do your workable version of the solution. And next time I'll do mine. And, and I've had to learn to, to come off my ladder because similar to you, what it sounds like, I enjoy finding out real information, finding the answer, presenting it with as much support evidence as possible because my way will get us where we want to go. But that doesn't increase affinity at all. Oh, that's a good reminder that I probably will need until the day I die, that maybe being right. It's we, my husband and I always joke because we're both very strong headed. We have strong opinions. We just, we both want to be right. Mm. And we really were working through some stuff 
to the point where we brought some friends in and we were like, we're just going to sit here and argue in front of you because we need a third opinion because we're at this roadblock and we just, you know, we can't move past it. We need, we need some help. So we like sat in front of, you know, all of our best friends and argued. And if you've never done that, like, hello, welcome to vulnerability, you know, just like <laughs> airing your dirty laundry. And at the end of it, one of our friends, I will never forget his like observation was like, he's like, yeah, it just seems like both of you in the midst of an argument, you're just both so concerned with winning and with being right. And I remember hearing him say that and honestly, Marvin, just being confused of like, what else is a fight? Like, it was so like, that's literally like, of course, that's what you try to do in an argument is win and be right. Um, But to your point, the understanding and I like your language around the affinity sometimes comes at like being right and building affinity and trust and empathy and understanding and connection can't always coexist together. And that's a hard lesson. Yeah. As the founder of a socially conscious company myself, I am always in search of brands that not only create amazing products, but also make a difference in people's lives. I could not be more thrilled to shout about Jonas Paul Eyewear truly from the rooftops. This company was started by Ben and Laura Harrison, who have become dear friends of Ben and I. When their son Jonas was very unexpectedly born nearly blind at birth, they realized firsthand how limited the options for well-designed, stylish, and affordable frames for kids are. And they started this company for Jonas and for other kids like him. And it gets even better. With every pair that you buy, you help save and protect the sight of kids around the world through their Buy Sight, Give Sight program. Today until September 6th, you can save 20% off any purchase. So head over to JonasPaulEyewear.com so that you can order their Try at Home kit to get your kids involved or your kids can virtually try on their glasses and find their perfect pair. The link will be in our show notes. Okay. Well, this has been so interesting. I've taken us in so many different directions. I want to get back to, um, you had a pretty illustrious career in marketing for a long time. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the path that you had, but then you kind of had a moment. Tell us about this moment in your story that ended up having an impact that maybe you didn't anticipate. Yeah. So I, I would work in advertising for about 12 to 15 years. And in 2018, uh, my daughter was born in the January and I was really struggling. It was the second mm. child syndrome is a huge thing. Obviously you've, you've gone through that. So you understand like, yeah. but from a dad's perspective, it was like my, my son and I, we had just bonded. I now understood and knew him. We just started getting sleeping sorted. And it was like, I think your first child is you're a parent. So it's like you two are the parents and this is the child and they just come with you everywhere. And then you like learn to adjust them to your pattern. Then when yeah. you have two children, it's like you're a family. And mm-hmm. actually, if you, you actually just can't move around that way because there's now two people who have two different schedules that basically means food, sleep and toilet breaks are on them. And so yeah. you actually just change the way you live. Actually, you don't do things. You don't stay up with them until 10 o'clock and stuff. It's all about structure, 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 bed at 7.38, go to bed and then we can be adults. Um, and so, uh, I was really struggling with that transition mm-hmm. from one to one to two and I really disconnected from my daughter and I couldn't land in a place where I could care for her. 
So my wife was obviously looking after my son because he was verbally like, I want my mummy. And she was obviously like little and needed support and I couldn't get the thing. Mm. So I was starting to get a form of depression. I was, I was very mm. sad at the point. And I, when I launched the group, the group was just about a place to, to say this stuff out loud for Father's Day. It was like, mm. Father's Day is weird. Like mm. I've never really seen it. It always sounds like it's really bad. The presents are terrible. The TV shows are terrible. The tributes don't come. So it just kind of feels like this thing that you're forced to do and smile at receiving socks. Like, oh, socks, thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> and then, you know, you're just not enjoying it. And so I, I just felt like I was quite disconnected. And, and they did a good, great job. I was, you know, I had dinner and breakfast in bed and stuff. I made the group. I just wanted to say that to other men so they could understand. This is weird. I don't enjoy it. I think it's a bit, you know, a performative thing and I feel very much disconnected from the celebration immediately every single father of the 23 in the whatsapp group was just like I feel the same yeah it's a bit weird but this is what I did today and you're right like we never really get celebrated but then it's like father's day comes and you're kind of meant to be like in this mode mm. and so actually on father's day what I want to do is not not be fathers I want to be like a man and I want to do non-fathering things whereas like for other people it's like yeah come on let's do like a whole day of activity and it's like that sounds like the opposite that's for tomorrow. Mm. We'll do that tomorrow. Um, and so the, the group acted as a real source of information for me. But these are people that I had known, but also just people that like I'd never had a conversation about fatherhood before. So it was a really beautiful space of like parking things like business and, you know, the latest whatever is going on in Arsenal, my football team underperforming. All those things went out the window and it was just about fatherhood. And it was a really nice space. So you know, so you basically just started a text thread, just to be clear. It was like a WhatsApp, a WhatsApp group, group that was just with your friends that was like, hey, we're just, this is going to be specifically focused group of friends chatting about fatherhood. That's it. And it was, to be honest, even then, it, I didn't even know the group was going to continue. I kind of thought, I just wanted to say that. My original message was like, guys, thank you so much for, you know, being fathers that I can look to. And at times when I don't know what to do, I look for you guys in social media mm -hmm. as a reminder as to like what is possible and how to do this. And I think that is what connected everybody. But the name mm -hmm. Dope Black Dads, which was just a colloquialism of things that I was saying at the time, landed in a way which felt like a North Star about we're saying mm -hmm. we're good dads and we're black and we're, you know, we are these things that are said about us aren't true. And I think it was nice from that point of view. But for me, it was just about having people to say something to. And it was the hope of just having anything come back to feel good. So in many ways, I was doing it for my own selfish needs, but it's kind of helped quite a lot of people now. I think that there's something so powerful about one of the things that I'm sure I didn't make up, I'm sure somebody else has said that I find myself repeating is like, be the friend that you want in the world. And like, so, you know, you're like, oh, it was kind of selfish. I reached out to do this thing because I needed it. But I think so often when we do that, when we go out and we create the thing in the world that feels like we need, the likelihood that it's going to resonate with other people who have a similar need is so great. Versus going out into the world and kind of saying, you know, well, what do you need? And let me serve you out of my abundance of how together I have it. Mm. Um, I think there's something really beautiful about just being the first person that takes the step to say like, hey, I'm feeling lonely and isolated yeah. in this area. There are narratives that exist about being a black dad that I don't identify with or that feel, you know, discouraging or I'm in a season of depression and I just like want to be able to talk about this yeah. and being the first to just raise your hand and say like, yeah. does anybody else want to talk about this? Um, yeah. Which is really scary. Like, I think, you know, it's not a small act. I think it's easy to, um, I just love stories. It's like, you've now built this whole, you know, like, 
global organization, but it really started out of your courage to be the first, to raise your hand and just say, I'm feeling away and I need some support. And also, I want to encourage you because you're also, I don't know, maybe feeling away and how much that resonated with the men in that group that ultimately tell us a little bit about what, what did that lead to? So we, we had a couple of conversations and we talked about everything from co-parenting, cohabiting, depression. But then there was one conversation about male suicide, which was really, really powerful, wow. which changed my understanding of my friends and also the group and what it's capable of doing because mm. we would never have got to that conclusion in any other group or setting because everything else would have been more of a posture or an update on what you're doing rather than an authentic, like, this is where I am. And the subject came up and I think uh, it was just people just saying, like, I thought about it, I've tried it, uh, mm. I've been stuck with this and I've tried it a couple of times in the last few years and, I, and this wow. is why I've done it. And I just had no idea. And I just remember crying. I think I cried for like a day and a half. It just just wouldn't leave me. It's just like, these are people that I love. And if I had discovered that in the moment they had actually done it, you know, what would I have said? What would I have done? And and in many ways, you know, I've created a space where that conversation is allowed to have. And, you know, I don't know what impact that's had in their desire to be around. But I feel like there's, you know, it's a very, even now I'm thinking about it, it's moving me. Like, I, I just, I just, I'm just glad that it existed. And so we felt like we needed to take these conversations, all of them, into a podcast format. And it was just about how do we have this conversation in an extended way and be really honest and authentic, let people hear what's going on for us in our lives without filter. And uh, we realized that so many mothers actually listen to it. Men participate mm-hmm. in it, uh, but mothers and, and women really consume it. I think our audience is about 65% women. Really? And I think it's about women understanding their partners and men because anyone it doesn't it's not really you know there are some things that specifically racial intersection but i just think you just learn some stuff about the racial experience but day to day it's just masculinity being discussed and uh, from every perspective and i think there's so much richness you can you can consume from it in that sense because the conversations are brutally honest you know hearing men say that i i'm not good at fatherhood or i'm not a good i'm not a good husband i'm, I'm not and i want to be and i don't know how and all my relationships breaking down. And, you know, I think, I think, uh, the concept of marriage is, is really problematic. And the concept of father and motherhood is really, and parenting mm. is really problematic because how it's framed is from a marriage perspective is that you two people are going to come together just as they are and you're going to make it forever because you said it with your mouth and then you stood in front of people. And the reality is, is that it, that's the furthest from the truth. And you've got to redesign it based on who you actually are today and then redesign it as you evolve and grow but if you have fixed things what you can and can't do it then cuts off the ability to evolve with the people because the important part is you two people are together and then your children are have a container to grow in then that should be adjusted based on you know the people that are in it and then if that ever is too too different then you can make really clear and concise understanding of why you shouldn't be together and it could be that simple but I think because we try to stick to the concept, we love the concept more than we love the people. Mm. It's like, I want to say I'm married or I want to say this is my, you know, and, and that becomes more important. So there's some things that I've learned in, in the last five years about listening to other men speak. And I feel like men sacrifice their happiness in a way that I don't think women fully understand because mm. we're just tools of capitalism. It's like men go out and make money and we've glamorized money in a way that makes it sound as if, if I earn more, 
then somehow I'm happy or I'm peaceful. Like, you know, if you ever hear a rich person say, I'm, I'm unhappy or I'm with a drug problem, people look at them and be like, but you got money though. It's like, well, that's not the answer. Like the things don't work for us. Uh, you know, if you're at the very top of capitalism and you can acquire your happiness on a yacht and a new 27 year old girlfriend when your marriage doesn't work, maybe that, that is a happiness to you. But for everybody else in the middle, the, reg- the regular guy, like he has to provide even if you are in a joint family, even if you do verbally agree, because we know we have more earning potentials, if it all goes left, nine times out of 10, you've got the man's got to figure out a double down plan of like, how I'm going to solve this problem. And we can pretend that that's not true, but it's the same thing with women in the workplace. Just because there's a female CEO there doesn't mean she's respected and honored in the same way that a man would or has the same amount of chances as a man would. So I think, I think we just need to go back to the drawing board of marriage because it doesn't, match the actual context that we live in today right now Mm. Uh, and often it comes at the consequence of both I don't think anybody wins but I'll speak for men specifically where I feel like as a tool of capitalism we get thrown into like go make money and we will use our spiritual elements our physical elements every single part of us to try and fulfill that task and quite often when you know we're left with not very much for ourselves or even for you as a partner or as our children as a person that we created Wow. Yeah, that's really good. I love the reminder that the false dichotomy of, well, if I'm losing, that must be your winning. You know, like if mm. I'm missing out here, that must mean you're winning as opposed to saying like, what if we're both existing in a system that's really broken and that mm. I'm being harmed in a specific way and that you're actually not thriving as a full whole human either And I do. I think in the conversation about gender equality, there is a tendency to fall into that false dichotomy that it's like Mm. for a man to raise his hand and say, this system isn't working for me. I do think that we can be really, really quick to say, listen, we have bigger problems on on our hands with how broken the system is. And there are so many ways in which women, you know, the capitalistic patriarchal system is clearly harming women, but I think it's clearly harming men too. And I mean, I think it's frankly the same, like we could talk about institutionalized racism, right? Where I think that there is this notion that, you know, white people created this structure that inherently damages people of color. True. I mean, that's my belief is like absolutely true. Also, is it damaging white people? Like I would hold the belief that to hold racist beliefs and perpetuate racist systems might have you winning from a, to your point, from a capitalistic standpoint, more opportunity, more money, more power. But like what that actually does to a human soul to hold that belief is so damaging. And so not, I believe who we were created to be like all parties are damaged within that system, some in very different ways. And we have to acknowledge that. But I think what you just proposed, this kind of notion of we kind of all win together, we create a system that honors and uplifts all of us kind of at the most core human fundamental level or systems that destroy us in very different ways. I really resonate with that. I don't know. What do you think mm. about that? No, I'm, I'm with you. And I think it's it's interesting when you apply it to your own intersection, it's, it's harder to hear. But, but conceptually, we do, this is why I talk about workability rather than good and bad. Like it works. What we're saying works. If we accept and acknowledge that whiteness doesn't pro- prosper in the same way because spiritually, 
you're disconnected because your focus is industrial revolutions and capitalism and suppressing people as a full-time way of being and denying it. What does that do to your affinity to human? Like life is as rich as the people in it. So if you don't have a large part of the global population in your life, if you don't have affinity to humanity and if you can't see someone, you know, dying and having a knee on their neck and, and feel something, who are you really? And, you know, that becomes a greater question. But because spirituality in the same way which it may apply in many women, because they've had to observe things in a way that's had them forced to understand themselves better. Uh, minorities have this thing. LGBTQIA people have this thing. So, in, you know, if we talk about, you know, who's got the tools to survive, you know, it's those people. They, they understand mm. what it's like to be in uncomfortable situations on an ongoing basis and adjusting themselves. And they've tuned themselves to withstand a much higher threshold of challenge than necessarily white men, for example, have done. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that we reward capitalism so much so actively that, mm-hmm. so even me as a black man, I have certain privileges where even as a black person, I can be in rooms and I can probably stand next to white men in a way that white women can't even, even though they're in their homes. So. I don't think the whole thing works for anybody and it doesn't work for more people. But because there's sort of like a tiering system of like oppression, it just means that you might bet down and be like, yeah, I'm a woman, but my whiteness allows me certain things. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to disrupt it because I just Mm -hmm. got my thing. (laughs) I just just got it. And so we all do it. And I'm here in South Africa and there's a huge patriarchy approach to like life here. And so I'm at dinner with my team you know, they will come to me and ask me if I want anything. If I say no, the table doesn't want anything and they walk off. And I'm like, yeah, yeah but two other humans want, do, do you want anything? And like little things like that, where totally. you're centered as a almost God, it's really hard to abandon. And like I was, I was saying to a friend, I was sheepishly saying it, but sometimes you forget that you are now being privileged because you also want to feel special. You want to feel like it is my meritocracy. Like I turned up at this thing and I was so polite that they only thought they wanted to talk to me you guys need to be more polite. You start doing random rationales like that. So in many ways, everyone does a little something. But what I feel like is when we get to the point where, and I'll use a reference again, someone's like dying in front of the world and then you know, someone's knees on their neck. I think we get to that point and it's like, you know, if women couldn't walk on the street at all ever, you know, like this is what happens in South Africa. But like, if that was happening in the US and UK, there'd be a global awareness if white women were unsafe everywhere. Like if you left your house as a chance someone might grab you, there would be a movement. There would be a decision that would be like, something's not right. We've got to challenge this from the root. There'll be investment. There'll be education. There'll be everything thrown at it. And I feel like, you know, for some conversations, it just hasn't by choice. Yeah. I mean, you say that and it's like one in five women on college campuses in the United States of America are sexually assaulted. Yeah. So I do think that there is like an... You know, we both live in a very global context and have been exposed, you know, one in three women globally are sexually assaulted or are victims of domestic violence. I think what's really interesting and even having this conversation, like you are obviously a black man. I am a white woman. So there's this really interesting dynamic where it's like I'm coming to the table as representing the gender. I have this lived experience of patriarchy that you don't, you're way more aware of it than a lot of men. And you've spent time exploring it and even you're acknowledging it and acknowledging that you benefit from it. You know, even just that story of you, you know, sitting at the table and you're coming to the table, obviously as 
you know, being black, having an, a lived experience with systematic racism that I can see, but I can't like understand and live. And mm. it does make me wonder to your point about the people groups who have experienced oppression. I think two things can happen. One is I do think it can make us more empathetic and in tune. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like in the conversation, when I hear my black friends talk about we, and for me, it's in an American context, we live in two different Americas. Like the way that you experience the world is fundamentally different than the way that I experience the world. I can hear that. And I think there's a sense of empathy because my lived experience as a woman is that I can say that to my male counterpart. It's like, we live in two different worlds. Mm. And when you're walking down the street with me, you might not even know that because even just your presence next to me changes how you think that I'm experiencing the world. Mm. So it, I do think that it creates more of a sense of like, oh, I get that because I've experienced it in a very different context. But I believe you when you say mm. we live in two different worlds. I think that's the positive thing that can happen. I think the negative thing that can happen is that to your point of what you said of like, damn, I just we just got this win over here. <laughs> like, I'm just going to hang on to it, you know, like mm. and I think that that's ultimately what we've seen. I'll speak from my perspective of like where white feminism has failed women of color is mm. that it's like we're so caught up in our own struggle from a gender perspective that once we get a win, it's like, OK, it's actually just a win for white women. But, man, it's still a win. Let's just hold on to it and not risk it and not, you know, mm. and that's like the negative side that I think it's like we can hold on to these like wins because we've experienced oppression and then not actually understand the implications of like, yeah, but who didn't actually win in that? Mm. I think I, just, just when, because when you were just speaking though, the, and you were comparing the woman experience with the racial experience, and I was just about to, this is, this is just really authentic. So yeah, it, 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 what went through my head was, yes, women can be sexually assaulted. And this is very dismissive, but I could die. I won't even make it to the other side of the campus. I can be shot and I can be killed. And when I thought about that, my first time I said that, I was like, yeah. And then the second time I thought about it, I was like, why can't it just be and? Yes. Why is it not but? Yes. Yes. That you, is the you key. Can, you're you're going to be sexually assaulted and that's completely unworkable. And I could be shot and I could be killed. And that's also unworkable. And what you're bringing into it, I can acknowledge and be like, that's not okay. And I need to educate myself about how I can support but then you can do the same thing. And then we don't have to, because we're both, not, it's not working for either of us in really extreme ways. Totally. I think the brilliance of that statement of and versus but, because it isn't, it's not an oppression Olympics, you know, like, and then it's like, and this is coming from somebody who it's like, know that my perspective is like, I think racism is, very real. And I think it is one of the most noxious, dehumanizing, destabilizing evil forces in our world right now. Like, I think that systems of white supremacy are so real. Mm. And the patriarchy is killing women. I mean, there are more women globally that will die or be hospitalized because of domestic violence than because of malaria and traffic accidents combined, right? Mm. Like, that's just like women are also dying. And so I think, how do we, you know, and I'm even, I'm, you know, like theoretically now you and me are now representing, you know, but like, how do we engage that spirit of yes and 
to collectively build a system, build cultures, build societies that work for everybody and that honor and dignify and that work for the folks that are on the margin. And I think you're 100% right that it starts with saying and. Mm. And there's actually probably like, I think a benefit to when we dismantle one, we destabilize the other, right? Like I think in the process of dismantling patriarchy, we actually are destabilizing white supremacy. And I think by trying to deconstruct white supremacy, we are effectually, even if that's not our complete stated goal, we are damaging and destabilizing patriarchy in the process. And that there's a lot of like synergy in there, but we have to resist the temptation each of us to say like, yeah, yeah, but my thing's bigger or it's more important, you know, and instead say like, and. Yeah. I think there's something about collective self-interest, which we've never really been able to have all these intersections in a room to discuss what our collective interest is. So what ends up happening is people platform off of each other. And so even the language of protesting at this moment, wherever the protest is for, is basically stolen from the black experience. And even words like woke being weaponized as new language of yeah. whatever they call it. I, I hate the word the left, all those things, because I'm conservative some things and I'm extremely liberal on some other things. It just depends what it is. But the, the reality is, is that how this language is being weaponized is really, really problematic. And, and what, what we haven't really done is sat at the table and figure out what does that vision look like? So, mm. you know, Martin Luther King, you know, he gets misused often and misquoted, but, you know, what legislation got passed in the end included rights for women and rights for LGBTQIA+. And and that's what really pushed the conversation forward when he became really dangerous to, you know, the people that have created the systems that we're in now is when he started engaging the white working class and befriending Mm. them and listening to them and taking on their challenges as their own and becoming a leader for them. That would have caused huge problems to the power dynamic. And I think sometimes... Mm. We're on the court being like thrown bones to like chase each other around race, gender, LGBTQIA+. And there's just people who are just profiting from this circle. And sometimes they even fund it and then they take the money back out again. And, you know, and I, and I just think sometimes when we acknowledge that, you know, it's not working and, and who is it working more for and what do we want to actually create? The people who have decided what they want to create, just go create it. Mm. Like you can create a small ecosystem in one state which is just the laws are different. You know, we put people in office that are a particular way and you know, change the laws so you can't be interested by external corporations and things like that. Just change it. Like, you can change it in one small way and people will sit there and look at that state and be like, oh, this is uh, something I want to I want to move there. And, and it's important to distinguish whiteness from white people because whiteness is, a, is an ideology. It's a completely different thing from white people. Mm-hmm. Um, the white extremism is probably a better language. I don't want to center it now. I want to just center it in like, what's my experience and who wants to be like me. He wants to look at the world and be like, how do we change this and make it work for more people? So I can have an affinity with you on your challenges around gender, just because I know you want change rather than then create a hierarchy about what it is. What's the 10 things that we're going to ask for? And it can include stuff for everybody. And with that, wow, we went a lot of different directions, Marvin. (laughs) I don't even know if you even got through five of your questions. We just had a conversation about what I did not. I did not get through any of my questions. I I did not cover. No, don't feel bad. I totally was like when I lean into a conversation that I think is important and interesting. I'm going to hope that there that our listeners out there are also going to be here for the rabbit trail tangent going off the normal path. It's actually a sign at least it's a sign for me sometimes when I really diverge that I think what you have to say is really important and interesting. And I'm grateful that you're out in the world creating the work that you're doing. So thanks for sending that text message 
to a dozen of your buddies. How long ago was that? You said in 2018? Yeah, Father's Day 2018. Yeah. And for continuing to lean into creating those spaces to be vulnerable. I think that is a rev. I think one of the most revolutionary things that men can do in our society today is to go first when it comes Mm. to vulnerability and community building. I think it's powerful, powerful stuff that can create revolutionary change, starting on the smallest levels of friendship, of de-shaming for men, failure, vulnerability, authenticity. And you're doing that with your organization and with your podcast. And I think it's incredible. And I'm grateful to know you now. Thank you. I feel like we have to be friends after this. We went so deep dive. I'm feeling... If I don't hear from you again, I'm going to be devastated. (laughs) Will your feelings be hurt? Because my feelings might be a little bit hurt. Yes. I'm going to start becoming a troll. I'm going to create an egg account. (laughs) I love it. No, I could not feel more similarly. So I'm... You just did it again. You went first because I was feeling that way. And then you said it. And then that gave me the freedom to go... Marvin, I want to be friends too. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be podcast friends. Give me my podcast friends. (laughs) So good. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time and your brain space and your thoughts and your journeys. Uh, I, for one, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. Okay, well, I hope y'all liked today's episode as much as I loved recording it for the 18 hours that we just chatted. Also, he was in South Africa, so he was so gracious and willing, and it was kind of like the middle of the night by the time we wrapped up. But if you also liked it, would you please subscribe, rate, and review the pod on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can follow me on Instagram at Liz Bohannon, where I hang out. I love to hear from you. Follow me. Shoot me a message. Let's chat. Or you can follow my producers, not or, and you can follow my producers, Human Group Media or Human underscore Media on Twitter. I am not on Twitter because I lost my password like four years ago, and it seems like a great benefit to my mental health to never find it again. (laughs) Okay, you guys, that's all. We'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky.